Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sega. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Lakeville podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Lakeville podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Wiggle Room. Being that it's the city's most vibrant burlesque venue, a night at Wiggle Room feels like a trip back in time to Montreal's rebellious youth. Right across from Schwartz's and other Saint Laurent landmarks, the Wiggle Room promises to entertain on the coldest winter night and the longest summer evening alike. Finally, we receive support from Good Mix, a hearty breakfast mix that really, really cares about your gut health. It keeps you full and makes your body happy. What more could you want with a meal to start your day? You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.lakefieldpodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hammer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Lakeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with Rodney Rourke, who is a safe cracker. He's actually the number one safe cracker in the province of Quebec here in Canada and one very fascinating person, interesting. It's like something out of a one of the Oceans movies or uh, right, the an inside job or something like that. Um, yeah, so it should be a very interesting conversation with somebody who is engaged in a profession that we perhaps don't encounter as much. This is not a journalist or a professor or anything like that. This is somebody who uh, is a very highly skilled profession with a skill set that hardly anybody else has. So it's a very interesting conversation which veered all over the place, and I think you'll enjoy it a great deal. All right. Without further ado, I give you Rodney Rourke. (laughs) <laughs> Welcome. Uh, hi, John. Um, <laughs> I'd like to point out I'd like to be referred to as a safe expert. A safe expert? Safe okay, okay. Makes a it safe sound like expert. I break into people's safes. That, a but. safe expert. Okay, that, that sounds like something that's in an HR department on a university at the moment, like sort of safe space expert. Or? Well, so it's more semantics, right? Because uh, it, it's what people view you as. Okay. I have to walk So you're good a- at getting into people's safe spaces? Is basically what you're saying? You're like, <laughs> That's exactly what I do. Okay. Um, They're like the Me Too movements. Like, and to the, yeah, anyway, we won't even go there. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and how you ended up doing this completely bizarre uh, field? Well, I was kind of a dumbass growing up. <laughs> and um, Weren't we all? My father took me under his wing. He, he started out as a locksmith. But he became like the best guy in Canada at opening safes and specializing in knowledge of safes. So I started going to work with him because I dropped out of college and I was like, I can't do this. And That's uh, interesting <laughs> that you went to college rather than automatically just following in his footsteps. Well, when I was young, I didn't think it was a cool thing, which was really weird when you think about it because you see it in movies all the time, right? You got James Bond opening the safe and everything. And, yeah. and I never thought about it before until I went to work with him. And uh, he showed me how to uh, manipulate, which is the art of touching the dial, feeling the numbers, and opening the safe. And (laughs) so 
I watched him do it for a while. And then the first time I tried it, I was able to do it. And then he sent me instantly out to do like three or four more at the, I think it was a arcade at the time. And I opened all of them. Wow. So then I brought like 50 home with me, like tiny little ones from the bank and opened all those too. <laughs> Cause I've got a bit of an obsessive personality. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. Yeah. And, uh, ever since then it's, it's been fairly easy. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I find it funny that you, you just that you went to college because for most of human history, the norm was. I mean, a lot of our last names in English, right? The uh, Cooperson, right? The all the it, it all refers to like the son of somebody who does this trade. But you had in the post World War II period, you had all these people who uh, like plumbers and electricians and stuff like that, and they told their kids, "Don't don't be like your old man. Go get a university degree, get an education." And don't do this, right? And that's and one of the uh, the strange kind of side effects of that is we have a huge glut on the market of people with uh, edu- with degrees from universities <laughs> that, that can't who do can't, yeah, can't do it. Like you know, would you like some fries with that? Right? <laughs> and then we have, as you probably have seen, the billboards all around Quebec. We have one third of the plumbers in Quebec are within a few years of retirement, and we have nobody to replace them. Like, all these different trades that are absolutely essential to civilization, uh, we don't have people to replace them. And a lot of the reason is, I can see it in, like, your story. It's that all these plumbers and electricians or, or you know, locksmiths told their kids, go to college. Yeah, like, that, that's exactly right. Get a BA right. in, like, English literature or <laughs> philosophy, some stupid shit like that. <laughs> right? So, like... Well, yeah. I, I do kind of like philosophy. <laughs> but you did end up, but you ended up, so you end up dropping out of college and going, uh, going into your old man's field. And it, it was the strangest thing because I absolutely love it. it. It it fits me like a glove because my mind works very analytically and I can get in front of a safe and be there for like nine hours and be like, I've got this, I, I, I'm going to open this. And, and it, it's weird because I have very little patience for people. <laughs> like, uh, like I, I was working this morning at a bank. And uh, whenever I walk in and I'm there to open the safe, they give me this kind of look like, sure you are. You're not going to be able to do this. You don't know what you're doing. And so you, you, you've got to absorb that. And then you go in and you start your work, right? And then you block everything out. And then they come and stare at you, which is a lot of fun, right? Because they're, they're staring at you. They're, they're hoping you fail because they're going to be like, see, I, I told you. And then when you, when you actually get it, you, you turn around and they've got this look on their face like, oh, Oh, well, that happened. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, yes, it did. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, right? So what are some of the, I mean, I've heard some over the years of your stories. But what are some of the craziest uh, stories you've had? Like, I mean, ones that you can say publicly um, without getting in too much trouble. Legally that I haven't signed any NDAs? Okay. okay. <laughs> um, I had to break into a, the, a house with the RCMP at about four in the morning. And... I didn't know what I was going for. They said, you got to come and open like six safes. So I arrive and there's like 30 RCMP outside. And I'm, a li- I'm like, okay, okay. I'm a little worried now. I open the front door and there's like 300 rifles on the ground. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, so it turned out to be this guy was a gun runner. Oh my God. I opened one of the safes and it was a big double door, like about six feet tall. And usually what I do is I open the safe turn the handle, and then I leave because I never want to see what's inside, ever. But the safe was off balance. So the door opens slightly and a grenade falls to the <gasps> ground in front of me. And 
it, it was too fast for me to get scared. So what I did is this, like, because <sighs> I'm like, well, it's over, right? Like, uh, and like, oh no, I'm still here. I'm still. We're good. We're good. I'm gonna go home now because now I've got to change my underwear. <laughs> but it, it, it's funny how like when things happen too fast, you don't have time so to get scared. Arm stealer? Like, a- oh yes, oh yes, he was. Uh, there's another story behind that. After that, is that the same? The owner of the house called me back a week later to repair the safes. And I'm like, I'm getting shot. I'm getting shot. Like, they know it's me. They know I opened them. And it turned out they did not know it was me. I brought somebody to watch my back while I did the repairs on it. <laughs> Got the bill signed and left and, like, pretended to be stupid the entire time. <laughs> it, it was very scary, though. That is wacky. <laughs> have you ever, I mean, did you ever have to go to, like, sort of Hells Angels or cartel houses um, or anything like that? Oh, yes. Oh, I, I've God. actually done... Um, there used to be, I, I let's see if I remember properly, a police force called the Wolverines. Yeah, that were breaking down on the. No, the, the Wolverines. Done. The Wolverines mm. was a, a task force that, when the when the gang when the biker war was happening between the Hell's Angels and the Rock Machine, after that kid was killed when they the, the bomb went off in the van and the one kid the kid died. Yes, that, it was it was the first time there was like a civilian like they, they, were, they were killing each other, but it was the first time somebody was not. A biker was killed, and they had an emergency session in Quebec City, and they pa- they created Operation Wolverine, and it basically just, uh, if you were a, a known associate of a biker gang in Quebec, you were stripped of all civil rights. They just, oh, yeah. uh, they had, they could go and seize your, uh, do search your houses, and they, I remember, I lived in Verdun at the time, and it was just... It was so clearly like a campaign of intimidation against them. Like uh-huh. they, they would go to their houses uh, with oh, tons of people, the SWAT team, and they would grab all their furniture to a biker's house and like throw it all out in the snow in the middle of the winter and then just leave. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it, they, was, it was actually a really weird time, especially yeah. since I grew up in LaSalle right next to Verdun. So when I would go with them to open up the safes, you know, I'd walk in and there'd be like, hey, buddy. I haven't seen you in a long time. <laughs> so it's like, oh, geez, I don't want anybody to know this is what I'm doing, right? Like, uh, And it, it was a little scary for a while, but I have to be very professional. Yeah. And uh, keep emotion out of it. And, uh, well, there it was a few scary moments for a while. Like, uh, what can you do? This is my job. Yeah. But uh, as of recently, I, I've got my own vest. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sometimes I walk into places with the vest on. Wow. Yeah. Because it's that kind of a place. Well, um, especially when I work at, like, um, working with Garda. Mm-hmm. They're very professional people. Um, they do their job properly. But I'm getting to be a bit of a chicken as I get older. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they guard me properly. Everything's done right. But I got to think of myself, too. You know, yeah. like... So how have you managed to get independent? Like, why are you not, like, working for a place like, you know, Brinks or Garda or something like that? Like, how do you... Well, I, Get I to sort be of independent. I, I subcontract for all of them, but the thing is, I I couldn't work with a boss because they don't <laughs> they don't understand what you're doing. So, like, I, I would do things like um, I keep records so that I know where to drill, where to be faster next time, so that it, and only I can understand it. it. It's not something I can hand to people and go, "Oh, now I can open any bank in the world. I've got it. Here's yeah. Fort Knox. Here I come." Yeah. But it takes time to do this, like an hour or two, you know, you go through all of them, you get measurements, you think, oh, I can do this next time. And 
And when I was working for someone, they'd be like, well, why are you doing that? You're playing around. And I'm like, it makes me a lot faster. <laughs> if I go in, if I get to a safe, like a, every once in a while, I get a safe from another country. Totally alien to anything we have designed. And I'll drill it and look in and it'll take me hours because we don't know where to drill. We don't know what the lock's like. Uh, and it's, it's very confusing. Mm-hmm. So that takes hours. But if I had had the schematics saying drill here, this five, 10 minutes, I can have it opened and nicely and repaired mm-hmm. nicely and we're gone. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is the difference. And it, it used to frustrate me to no end. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were showing me the, the picture of the safety crack this morning and like the inside of it and the mechanism. Oh, it, it's gorgeous. So it, it, it's beautiful. It's so intricate. But if you, I mean, when you go to that, you know, that particular model, so you know exactly where to, to drill and you know how to do it. Right. A- absolutely. And uh, usually what I do is I, I have them send me a picture and then I research it the night before. So I'll, I'll come up with a plan A, plan B, plan C. I think only once did I get to plan D. And that was from some safe that was from Italy called a Marconi, I think it was. And actually I ended up cutting it open with <laughs> so I'm like, well. Brute force, brute force. I'm going to go yeah. with that's plan E and I failed. Yeah, right. So <laughs> it's, I mean, when you look at the movies, you know, like the, the Ocean's Eleven, all those movies where they're safe cracking and everything, like to what extent are they getting it right in those movies? Um, I did some work on the score. And, uh, like the movie, the yeah, score. the movie, the movie, like I, I, the producers came over and they were buying. I didn't safes. realize that was filmed in Montreal. Oh, it was absolutely. Oh, wow. And so I gave them some pointers, like they, they came and asked me and I gave them some pointers about how it would look when I did it. And, and they ended up having it drilling a hole in it and exploding it. Right. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure I could have manipulated that pretty fast with no damage and no water, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it wouldn't look really interesting. So. That was off. But the movie, what was the, I can't remember the name of the movie. The Italian Job. Oh, yeah. Where he's manipulating, and that's how I do it. Or or you start off with, um, she's drilling in and she's putting wires in. Yeah. That's my exact job. That's wow. my That's what I do. And I, I've got that, those things to put the wires in and you know, jump the celluloid. And like, I've got all that. And the fiber, fiber optic cameras and everything. That's what it is. But the thing is, it's not five minutes usually. (laughs) You know, but nobody's going to watch a movie for three hours watching me manipulate. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is boring. It usually takes a much, it's much longer than that. Yeah. Right. Like, I lose all track of time when I start. Yeah. Well, like, why am I hungry? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's been six hours. Yeah, now I know. Well, it seems like it's one of those jobs that that kicks in, you know, the thing we were talking about, like, the other night, but the, uh, that, that hunting in impulse that we have in our brain where we can we can just like switch off if we're chasing after like wolves have this a number of animals have this where like if they're chasing after prey that a number of mechanisms kick in in the brain where you just get narrow in on your goal and you don't feel pain and you don't feel uh your your brain gets like flooded with endorphins and stuff like that you don't feel pain you don't feel fatigue you don't feel hunger or thirst, anything like this. And this is apparently like why you're into, like, why you enjoy cracking safes. That's also key to how people get addicted to gambling or get Absol- addicted absolutely. to anything. It's that because when you have that, that focus, that goal, that laser focus, it, 
you don't care about any of your problems or anything else. It's just like it's all gone. When I try to explain to people, I call it hyper-focus. Is that there's nothing else exists. I, I don't know. I have to go to the bathroom. I don't know. I'm hungry. And it's like, and I, I've actually had it once where I, I had pneumonia and I'm doing it and I don't feel sick at all because that's the only thing that's important is this. And it's like, next thing you know, it's like, it's dark out. Did I really take that much time? <laughs> yeah. Well, you see kids when they get obsessed with video games. Yeah. It's the same thing. Like they'll just take, they'll get that laser focus on the, on the goal. And then suddenly it'll be two o'clock in the morning and they haven't eaten in, you know, 16 hours or they smell and they haven't, they haven't slept. They haven't, and they didn't even, they didn't even think about it like at all because they're just so well, kind of I, focused on the task at hand. I'd like to say I don't do that too, but I actually like playing video games and I've been up till two in the morning going, oh man, I got to get up right. What was I thinking? It's yeah. because you lose track of time. It's very fascinating. There, I mean, the, the healthy version of this is... Uh, uh, the, the psychologist uh, Csikszentmihalyi has like one of those like crazy long Eastern European names, but like he talks about, you've probably heard of like getting into flow, like the flow state. Oh yes. Right. Yes. And he said that um, people who are, people who are happy, who are like happiest in their job, whatever the job is, or people who are happiest in like relationships and stuff like that. It tends to be people who go into flow on a regular basis as part of their job. And so, it flow is is this particular, and you can actually see it like on a brain scan, like what it looks like. You're in the zone. And yeah, you're in the zone, and you're you're doing a task which requires your full attention, and it, it you really have to be focusing on it, but you're good at it. And so, like they say, like the the classic uh, flow state is you're driving on a highway that is like swervy, like this, like it swerves like this, and so. You can't zone out. You can't be like <laughs> okay. texting. You have to actually be like focused on driving. Uh, so you're engaged, but you can do it. And there's there's not a lot of traffic and you're driving on a, a road like this. <laughs> and that puts your brain into this flow state, which is just like incredibly good for your mental health, for your physical health. It, it has all these benefits. And people who are uh, like scattered all the time, which is what these days the typical office job under fluorescent lights worker in a cubicle they're scattered i mean they're like they're they got like five things open on their phone they got their computer on they got somebody talking to them so they're just scattered all day long and they have like no flow state they're never doing one thing yeah they're definitely not multitasking they're 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 scattering okay that sounds yeah (laughs) and so i mean a job like yours it actually would would uh you could predict that that would actually be something that would make somebody very happy, right? Uh, absolutely. Like, uh, and it's too bad because uh, I'm a huge show-off, right? So uh, <laughs> I peek I, I wouldn't know anything about that at all. I'm just all, saying. So, yeah. And uh, what happens a lot is, is that when I do something awesome or that I find awesome, I'm alone. Yeah, <laughs> you can't like you can't like, post it on like Instagram. Like, yes, look, Click, I just practiced yeah. like Hell's Angels safe. Like, and uh, I've actually like, got look poses at the for myself. Head in there. <laughs> actually, like, ooh, see that? That just happened, yeah, you know. Right. But nobody's around to see it. <laughs> so, is it like what? Are, most of the time, is it banks or is it private citizens like living in mansions? Um, is it, like, what is it most of the time? Percentages, I'll give it like seventy percent, like banks and uh, like. Uh, like big companies. 
Like it, it's surprising that people don't realize how many safes are out there. Like every McDonald's has safes. Uh, like um, the post office has a bunch. You, you know what I mean? Like every place has a safe for something and they, they're designed to break down. Like electronic locks usually have a life capacity of four years. What? Yeah. Whereas the best locks I've seen last like almost 50 years. Okay, so and that's and so they they all they're made. It's planned obsolescence, like oh, yeah. everything else. Yeah, that's so. That, I think we're not supposed to know that though. They're like, <laughs> well, I mean, all consumer products these yeah, days absolutely. are made with planned obsolescence. Like I, I remember finding in a, it was a like an antique place. You know, all the the strip of them on Notre Dame, like the in, in Saint Henry. There's like oh, all yeah. those like antique stores. I remember finding in one of those places an old toaster from the 1920s. Oh, my God. Yeah, like this big kind of thing like this and a weird kind of thick cable in the back. And uh buddy of mine, he immediately, he knew about this stuff. And he's like, oh, wow. And so he got it and he fixed the, the wiring on the back to make it usable for today. And he, I mean, last I checked, he, he had the same toaster and that was like 25 years ago. And he said, because this is stuff that was made before planned obsolescence was put because planned obsolescence came in after the great depression because they thought we don't want the great depression to happen again. And so the way we will prevent it from happening again is we've got to keep people buying stuff all the time. So we have to make it way easier for people to get consumer credit. Right. And we have to make the stuff break so that they constantly have to buy new things all the time. So like stuff that was made before that, like factory-made, mass-produced stuff, was made, everything was made like a tank. Like, yeah. never rusted. Like, even never, the cars, the cars, everything. Yeah, it would last, yeah. like, forever. It was made to last, like, forever. And they said, we can't do that anymore. <laughs> or else we're going to have the Great Depression, and it's going to cause, like, you know, breakdown of society, and so. Actually, I, I never knew that. You just taught me something. Yeah, today. I know. It's, it's so kinda, it's a good day. It's kind of, <laughs> but I, I'm just surprised that something, because I kind of thought in my mind that safes would be sort of like, I don't know, nuclear weapons like <laughs> it'd be like one of those things where let's not do the planned obsolescence on this because <laughs> well, this is really important that, um they designed a safe lock specifically for like uh subs like the the to keep the atomic codes uh the space station stuff like that it was called a um, mass hamilton and it was designed by these scientists and it powers itself and it, if a nuclear weapon goes off three miles from it it would still function Right? So this was awesome. This new lock, it was revolutionary. And then it got bought out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it got, uh, I think it was bought out by uh, a German company. But the parts they started putting in it were lesser metals, worse materials. Yeah. Also, it started breaking down all the time. And I'm thinking, this would not be good. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, let's do the nuclear codes. And it's like, we can't get the safe open. Sorry. Not happening. <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 amazing. I used to I worked at a garage on the point for a while when I was younger and I remember I would buy like all the parts. I would deal with the parts dealers. And I remember like the the, the what they call the jobber parts, right? The cheap parts versus kind of the the nice stuff. When you would look at the part and you just had like the two parts in your hand, the difference was unbelievable. Like if you had a fan belt, right? The fan belt that was made by like well volvo now they suck but like uh, they, they, they was made by like volvo or bmw would be like this thick 
Oh, you know? crazy. And then the the one, the jobber one that was made in like, you know, whatever, like Taiwan and stuff like that, it would be so thin. And you're like, this is going to wear down in like six months. Like, <laughs> this is not going to last. It's actually like you could tell the uh, the difference in the like the thickness of the rubber or the you know the metal or anything like that. Like, it's very, very obvious. It's amazing. With, with some um, antique safes, they had these locks that they're all brass. And brass is a self-lubricating metal. Right, so you didn't have to watch it or, or take care of it as much, and it's almost artistic inside because they do like these designs on it that nobody's ever going to see, which it was is confusing, right? So you take it apart, and I'm like, it's beautiful, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, <laughs> look at this, like it's this is a painting. So beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, it's like, oh, that's even an ugly color, you know, like what what is this? And it, you you feel it falling apart as you're holding it. Yeah, and it's crazy, but some of these locks last for over a hundred years. Yeah, I remember looking around uh, like churches and cathedrals, you know, cathedrals and stuff like that in in France, and I I just had that, set, especially like the, the really nice like Gothic ones, like like Chartres Cathedral and everything, and like you'll go up in this random corner that's like up on a spiral, and you you look at this one little place, and there's all these beautiful details, and you're like the person who did this, they didn't have to do that. That's not out in the open, like this is somebody who clearly just loved their work. And they were like, I'm doing this for the glory of God. I'm doing what yeah. they, they love what they're doing. They're really good. And it's, they're doing it for themselves or for perhaps because they, you know, they, they believe God is watching them. They, but they're doing it for like, when you create that kind of like beauty where you open up a machine and you see, you, you love what you're beauty, you beauty love, yeah. that, that was like, not really intended. It's not just what, uh, what people would see from the outside. That's always fascinating to me. Yeah, like we, we, we've seen some that are like 150 years old that a long time ago, they used to write your name on the safe. Like if it was owned by a John Hamer, it'd be like Hamer, you know, and they would do a painting, but not like a, not like a press on or <laughs> they would actually do a little painting with like roses or like a, uh, the ocean. And it was gorgeous. And you, you can actually feel the brush strokes on it. It's, it's very rare to find one that's totally intact, but the, they were gorgeous. Like, they, they really put time into things. Yeah. And I, I kind of miss that. Yeah. Well, you know, apparently, you know, if you look in old Montreal, like, to the old beautiful buildings, and they've got all these great details and the stonework and all that stuff. Apparently, the, the main reason why a lot of that stuff doesn't happen anymore is just because uh, labor, you know, the labor costs are so much higher now. Like, back then, they could have huge they could have you could have that kind of stuff because it required a lot of people working for many many hours and they just couldn't uh there's a what's a william weintraub's book on montreal city unique it's really really beautiful wonderful book but he has a whole bit in that book where he talks about the golden square mile you know like oh, yeah, where right. it was like all mansions yeah right and that was in the at the beginning of the 20th century there was like something like Ninety yeah, percent of Canada's wealth was located in this square mile of Canada, like in downtown, uh, downtown Montreal. Like, right? Uh, I mean, the, only a few of the mansions are left. Primarily, like James McGill gave gave his his buildings, his mansion to to McGill University, and a couple of the ones who donated them to institutions are still around. But all the rest of the mansions were were torn down, right? And so he explains why, which I was completely shocked. I I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I, I guess I figured that the people lost their money. 
that they somehow, I don't know, lost it in the Great Depression or they like, <laughs> something like that. But apparently the, the reason is so much more prosaic than that. It's that um, when labor costs, because of the, the labor movement and things like that, because suddenly you had wages were going up and you had more benefits and things like that and there was a higher standard of living, those massive mansions required like a small army of staff just to keep them maintained, just to keep, you know, the painting, repairs, you know, like just like everyday stuff. They required like a small army of, of staff. And when that staff were, you know, people like from the point, Irish, Irishmen from the point, <laughs> would you pay them like, here, I'll, I'll, I'll hit you and give you a piece of bread once a So people a week. like me is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, but like when it was, when you could get labor really, really cheap, you could afford to have these big places. But once labor was... Uh, once those people could get a job in a factory in Lachine making like good money, they're not going to work for you unless you're going to pay the same. And so those those big mansions actually uh, were torn down because the people who owned them couldn't afford to keep them up anymore, That's which I, I find just absolutely fascinating. I find so many so many weird things about like even old Montreal and everything. Um, we, we had a call once at CP Station. And that building is old. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they, they brought me around and showed me all where the, the first gold that was brought to Montreal was kept in the CP building. And they had a, actually a vault for that. And they came and showed me that. But the weird thing is they were renovating and they knocked down a wall. Behind this wall, they found a room. And it was filled with safes, like five or six safes. And none of them had the combinations. And like, one of them was even like 400 years old. What? And it was from Spain. And they had four rotary things where, where the where, where the dial is supposed to be. This sounds like a movie. Script. Oh, it, it, was, it was crazy. <laughs> it was it, it was insane because I'm like I don't even know what I'm looking at, and it actually had the Spanish alphabet throughout it. Like I, it took me a while to figure it out. I'm like, what am I looking at? It's like double L and the N with the N Y that's not N, <laughs> and it, so I had to figure out how to move all these parts. And how they worked on the inside. We ended up opening it. It was quite intricate. I was so surprised. Like, I don't know what this is. And I remember calling up my father going, I need help. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. And I, I've never had to say that before. Uh, so he, he came over and we're, we're drilling in. And I remember seeing the, the iron in the safe melting and flowing out like lava. I was like, have you ever seen this before? And we're like, no. I'm like, I'm kind of excited. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. It was something we've alloy, never seen before. It was just it, yeah. an alloy that had a very low kind of like exactly. melting point. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It's like, I've never seen this before. Wow. And I've seen weird things. And was there something cool in there, like buried treasure? Or was it just like somebody's 400-year-old sandwich? Like Some of them were filled with coins. And uh, it was... It was it was quite exciting actually uh, seeing the different money at the time. Like uh, what was it? The nickels were really tiny. The pennies were really huge. You know, like it, it, it was interesting oh, from seeing like the, from the nineteenth century Canadian ones. Yes, yeah. I had a I had a coin collection when I was a kid, and I remember that the Canadian pennies were really big. And I can't remember when they they got small. I can't remember at one <laughs> point, but I had like a book. And had them, like I had each year, you know, going through. And then, like, they suddenly got down to the, right, the, the other size, right? Like, it was, yeah. That's, that's wild. I mean, like, yeah. There's one 
thing I want to ask you about is because we've both no- noticed this like over the years, but I, I firmly believe that whatever job you have, it kind of it, it shapes your I mean, yes, you, you have a personality in the beginning, which is part of it is like nature and nurture, whatever you want to say. But like I, I've noticed that once when people pick a particular profession, whether uh, you know, it's it's like Andrew to be like an entrepreneur or to, you know, you working in kind of trades and things like that or working in like white collar stuff that it shapes people over time. And so I'm wondering without getting you <laughs> too much trouble, like how would you say what is the difference between somebody who chooses your path? Because I, I have to deal with this with students all the time. They <laughs> ask me like, well, what should I do? What is the difference between like how a job like yours shapes you? vis-a-vis what you've seen people who are in sales or people who are in office jobs and oh well what are the uh, differences this is a question that's going to get me in a lot of trouble well i was <laughs> i was talking to my friend alex this morning alex um you might know him <laughs> uh, yes and he's in sales so basically he goes from customer to customer sits on his butt and it's made him a little bit wimpy right Whereas, like, I'm always on the go, always having to push, like, for, like, nine hours straight on a thing. I mean, just recently, I went across the Andes with my son, and I'm nearly 50 years old. Yeah. So I'm saying. (laughs) I don't want to tease Alex, but I really do. Well, well, but also, I just mean, yes, physically, for sure, but also just um, sort of psychologically or the way you... Like, okay, to give you an example, right? Uh, My uncle, I love him. Uh, I love him very much. Uh, but he's he's been in sales his whole life, right? And I can see how being in sales his whole life has very much like shaped him because he, he you know a very long time ago when he was young he was in the the navy for for a number of years, right? And when he was in the military he had a certain way of like being, right? Which is a very kind of military way of being, and and that was very dignified and very I don't know it was a certain thing, right? But but he's been in sales for, you know, and he's now like in his in his 50s, um, late 50s now. And and he it's hard to turn it off. Right. He's always in sales mode. So if you're if you're talking about what you're going to watch on Netflix, he's selling you. Right. If, you're, if we're talking about like which bar we're going to go to or which restaurant, you know, because it's like Friday night, we're going. He, he's pitching you. And it's like, would you fucking stop like (laughs) would you just talk to me like a person like stop selling me but it's hard you know if you're like a real estate agent or if you're you just it's it's like Nietzsche says right like whatever profession you get it gives you your hump back right it it, it shapes you in a certain way Uh, if you're like a prof you're always like lecturing monologuing everybody I wouldn't know anything about that (laughs) I've been like you're you like it's just so I'm interested like vis-a-vis other people that have taken different paths like because because one of the things that i find you know i mean definitely this is this is rodney to some extent yes but i've noticed that people uh people like you in position they're very just spontaneous and they speak openly they're not very politically correct and they don't really care very much if people like them or not and they're you know they're charming but they're not uh they're not guarded and careful right whereas people i know who have worked in um in, in professions, they tend to be, because in white collar work, very often advancement and, and promotions and, and raises, it's not really based on anything tangible, 
like your actual productivity. Like if yeah. you can't open the safe, you can't open the safe. Yeah, Everybody's staring at you, right? <laughs> and you look like an idiot. Yeah. But very often in, in white collar work, uh, the person who's actually the most productive in the department, they don't necessarily get the promotion or the raise because maybe they're, I don't know, maybe they're not very friendly. They don't know how to kiss ass the right way. And so uh, very often people who advance, it's people who are very likable, right? And are very careful, Right, so it it shapes. I remember. I wish I could remember the acronym, but a friend of mine, Sarah, she had like a, an acronym that she put up in her office, and it was something like a career limit limiting act or something like. That. I, okay. I can't remember. What, like it was like it was a, an acronym which was to remind you whenever you want to say something or post something in social media or you want to like. Uh, Anything that you have to ask yourself, could this be a career limiting act? Like basically, <laughs> could this offend somebody? Like if I post about, you know, Ali's book, like, will this, will this like, uh, will this like, you know, offend my professor or this offend somebody that you have to be like, and I, I just don't know if that's necessarily very good for you in the long term. Uh, um, I can tell you, no, it isn't. <laughs> um, I have to be. Very professional work. You wouldn't even recognize me. Like you'd be like, "Who is it?" That's not Rodney. It's his. It's his dumb twin brother or something. You know. Um, when well, Alex went on went yeah, to yeah, open came, up a bag a couple times <laughs> with you, and he said you were like completely Rodney. Um, well, we're just him, like Rodney in the because town. he knows me, right? But yeah. we're, we're doing it quietly too, and only when nobody's watching. Okay. <laughs> so what, what happens is I go in there and I have to be very professional. I can't make jokes. Nobody wants a joker when you're about to open their safe. Yeah. Nobody wants somebody with any charisma at all. They want yeah. you to be you're you're um a machine. Yeah, it's like a gynecologist. You, you don't want jokes. <laughs> yeah, there's no, no jokes. No, no there's jokes. No jokes. Yeah. Exactly yeah. like a gynecologist. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you go in and you, you have to be totally professional. And like the urge to make jokes is really hard for me <laughs> because I want to say something like like uh they a lot of customers do dumb things, right? Like they'll uh They'll spill water or, or some form of liquid on an electronic dial and expect it to work afterwards. I'm like, and then you're trying not to speak like they're challenged. Yeah. But they are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, a, as a, they're looking at you, well, could it have been somebody else's mistake? No. No, it couldn't. <laughs> and I'm going to fix it. I don't want to talk about it. And I, I don't care whose fault it is. Like, And everybody's always trying to pass the buck too, which is funny. So... When I'm not at work, I'm absorbing socialness, right? Like I, I go out and like a, I want to talk to big groups of people and everything because when I'm at work, I'm always on and it's exhausting. Uh, you're, on in the, you're on in that focus. Yeah, in that focus right? Right? and yeah. you're, you know, you're serious and because nobody wants a joke, but very rarely you find somebody that like. You know, we'll joke with you first. Then you're like, okay, okay, I can, I can, I can joke around. This is okay. Yeah. So when I I did a job for Justin Trudeau, and uh, I, I know my, that might be politically incorrect now, or yeah, uh, what in the Trudeau mansion, like the one on uh, at his dad's house. Yeah. Well, wow. Yeah, that's I, I've been to Christmas parties. There. Yeah. <laughs> that's a huge piss yeah. picture of his the father one on, on the, wall. the one on Pine. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I go there and being professional, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm working for Trudeau's son, like, what the hell, right? And I get there, and I'm working, and, you know, like, we're talking very professional to each other, 
And all of a sudden, I open it. And he's like, huh. So all of a sudden, he starts talking. <laughs> he goes, he goes, that's pretty cool. And then he sits down. We, we talk for like three hours. <laughs> and he's like, you that's remind so me funny. of my brother. I can imagine <laughs> Sasha talking for three hours, not Justin. But you that's know so what? funny. He, he's an awesome guy. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and like he, he's very presentable, and he likes to joke around, and he's a guy. Yeah. And like he, and he's very, genuinely nice. Yes, he, he yeah. is genuinely nice. Like very, very long nice before guy. you went into politics, he's genuinely actually <laughs> uh, that nice. I would go yeah. out and party with him. Like that, that's how much <laughs> I liked him. Like uh, we we got along we instantly. And every once in a while that happens. Like a uh, you meet the weirdest people. Like uh, I think Mel Cité de Cinema, right? The the owner of that Mel. Okay, I'm not that's where they make all the movies in Montreal. Okay, all the movies. There's like four or five different locations. So. I'm moving a safe in this person's house and it's a huge house. And there's like these watches on the table that are being, that are rotating. And I didn't understand what that was. It's because those really expensive watches, like the ones that are like $250,000. Like the Rolex stuff. Yeah, have to the- be constantly rotated so that, that the inner workings are working properly. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay. It's like, listen, I'm a poor boy. I know nothing. They, like- and she... Asked me to help her like move the safe a little, and it was about 500 pounds. So, when it, when it comes to safes, that's not a big deal. But so I'm moving it, I'm trying to be careful, and she gets right in there with me and starts helping me move it. I'm like, oh my god, oh, is this, this gonna, woman is okay, awesome. This is totally going to turn into a Rodney story. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like this, this woman who's got tons and tons of money, who's used to people working for her all the time, gets in there into the dirt and just starts helping me push. And I'm like, I respect you so much right now. It's like, I couldn't believe it. I was. <laughs> Because you go to other places and they're, they're snooty. I'm, you're, I'm paying you to be here. So you're here. And I'm like, I don't really need your money. Do you understand that? You need me. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I love it when people are very genuine, very sociable, mm-hmm. kind of tribal. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like uh, they don't see you as a lower person or a higher person. You're just a guy. Yeah. And I love that. Love that. Do you have any plans of like sort of passing on all of this stuff? Like, is your son, does he have any interest of getting into the family business? Like, does does he want to sort of learn or does your daughter have any interest in learning like all the stuff that you've? Um, I'm going to go with a hard no for both of them. Um, (laughs) They're not, they're not into it. My son actually says uh, I'm a glorified door opener. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And usually by them wrestling, right? Uh, Um, He's awesome, though. Uh, <laughs> and I don't really take it personally because it's funny. Well, he's in the military. Right? Yes, like, exactly. Yeah, so, so he's like, anything you guys, normal guys do, you don't know what you're doing. And he wants to be a pilot? Yeah, like that's that's wants... the end game. That's the, okay. He's going to start as an MP, I think. Uh, he can do anything. He's just one of those kids that can do anything he chooses. Yeah, well, and- Andrew's a helicopter pilot. So we have uh, in studio friend of ours, Andrew McClymont, <laughs> and he uh, who's been on the podcast before, but he's a, a helicopter pilot, so that's... Uh, well, that's damn impressive. That's, uh, <laughs> so your son wants to do helicopters or planes or I, what? I think fighter jets. Fighter jets? Yeah, if, if that's a proper term. Fighter, I'm yeah. Not a military man? The uh, Well, fighter jets, that's that's intense, and only, only a, a small percentage of people end up... Getting to that, I mean, good luck, good luck to him. And your daughter's not interested in going into. My daughter's uh, doing history now. She's finishing in university, and uh, she's she's an academic, so not very much like me. Mm-hmm. But I do have a love of history, like she does. Thank God, so we have something to talk about, right? <laughs> but my, my my son's kind of a overachiever. 
Like uh, when we did a, a trek to uh, Machu Picchu, we're down at the bottom and looking up at the stairs, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so he ran it all the what? way up. Got up to the top, threw up, but he did it. Just, but isn't it like really low <laughs> oxygen yes, there? Yes, yes, it is. So you're, you're not supposed to do big exertion because you might. That, wow, mixed emotions. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking. Oh my god, I'm so mad at you right now for being that awesome. Yeah, but at the same time, the pride, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I know exactly what <laughs> the you mean. The fun of being a father. Yay. The, yeah. Well, it is funny. Like, I mean, I guess some people are like this throughout their life, but I remember. Specifically, there is something about. I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it's the same for for young uh, your girls too. But I I definitely remember that kind of being like a young guy, and I I see it with my sons, right? They're fifteen and sixteen, and they both have that crazy like drive. <laughs> like they're just they're focused on whatever they're focused on doing. Like uh, my son Indy, for instance, he's like he's got a week off from school. It's his, like, you know, his break, March break, right? And rather than just, like, lounging around the house and, you know, doing whatever, he had, like, it mapped out, like, what he wanted to achieve, like, during the week. And one of the things he wanted to do was he has a bunch of other friends who are all into art, and they do these, like, 24-hour challenges. And it's, like, with other, like, online communities. And so you you stay up for 24 hours straight, and you do um, you do, like... Art. So they'll give you, let's say, I don't know, like a, an image or, I don't know, like some flowers or something like that. Or some weird project, say, like, produce a painting um, on this. And you have, like, three hours to work on that, right? So you work for three hours and then you submit it. And then they give you a different thing. And you have a certain amount of time. And so he was up all He's at home, like, still up. He was up for 24 hours straight with a bunch of his friends doing this, <laughs> right? And then uh, his brother, Tristan, is, like, 16-year-old. It's, like, he's same. so driven and, like, competitive. He's, I mean, for him, it's, like, it's other stuff. It's, like, music and math, and he wants to be, like, Jason Bourne. He's doing, like, it just weird push-ups just makes and sense. crazy, like, exercises and running outside in the cold, like, in his bare feet, like, like to run around the snow just to make himself like tougher and stuff like that. It's this weird, like I, I don't know if it's a testosterone thing, but like it, you can totally see having sons. I can really see why historically they've they've sort of taken young men and and enlisted them into war and been like, ah, right, go die for your country because <laughs> yeah, they're oh, yes. so testosterone pumped and stupid that they'll be like cool you know, let's do it this like, is sparta yeah, 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 yeah they're like this is you know whereas at our age we'd be like fuck that i'm, I, I'm to, like i just want to go watch a movie your country. now like i'll die for my family my block you know but like i'm not dying for my like so it's it's uh it's, it's a different kind of thing but that but running up the steps at <laughs> yeah, that's like so I, difficult i was so mad at him because uh, not mad. You know, mad is the wrong word. I was so, I can't believe you just did that. Because we had just hiked 75 kilometers over a glacier, through a jungle. And I I was dying the entire time, right? We had altitude sickness. Uh, I did not train properly for it. We were definitely not acclimatized. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of a dumb, right? Yeah. And uh, But the thing is, I wanted to do it with my son. And it was it was important to him. 
So I was so mad at him. I was like, I was like, I don't know why I'm mad, but I am. And at the same time, I'm so proud. At the same time, I'm like, I just gotta go home. Yeah, I gotta I go think, home. <laughs> well, I I tried. I tried last. I think it was last last summer. I believe it was because Tristan and Indy go out running in the morning, and they go and run up Mount Royal. They run out the front door and they go like running and they like up the mountain and then back down and come back. I tried to <laughs> I tried to go running with them a few times. It was I mean I think they were sort of having like well, let's take some pity on the old man like they were trying to like <laughs> they were trying to like like slow down a little bit, but then when they got to a certain point they just like ran and it was just like these gazelles going like like just like ran off and like. God, like they're just and like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, and you're thinking, you jerks. Yeah, I and hate yet you're you. You're proud. You're proud. But I'm proud of you, and I love you. But I hate you, and, and it's weird. I'm trying to, yeah, you know, like that. I, uh, I actually like one that one time I went and I I cut off the side of the trail, and you know the the big steps. Like I went up the steps, <laughs> and then and then I went like I went up the steps and went to the trail at the top. Mm-hmm. And so they ran by, and I'm just like, oh, wow, you guys catching up? And they're like, how did you do this? It's the only thing we could do. We could outthink them. We that's just all. outthink them. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, like, that's very often they say that, you know, wisdom is basically just uh, a compensation for a lack of vitality. Like, you, you, you have to come up with, you have to learn how to, like, fight smart when you can't fight strong. <laughs> well, they, they say you only gain wisdom through suffering. So I must be the wisest man alive. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't well, think of myself that way. Well, maybe. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of wisdom, though, is just I think is a kind of overcompensation. So you know, like if people lose their sight, they suddenly become like their hearing becomes way way more acute, and they can they can and their touch and stuff like that. So they can like tap with a, a stick and get around. Or people when they lose one. Uh, one sense, other senses become much more like stronger to compensate. I think wisdom <laughs> is to some extent a kind of a a compensation. Like when you're when you're losing, you're not as you know. Like when you have like that crazy kind of energy of youth, where you can just like stay up all night doing some task, right? Like I, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, David, who's a lawyer, and he said, you know, when I was a a younger lawyer, he's in his 50s now. He goes, when I was a younger lawyer, I would work like 60, 70 hours a week. I worked like a dog and all this stuff. He goes, but I can't, I can't do that anymore. Like now, if I, if I pull an all-nighter, I feel like garbage for like four or five days afterwards. Like I don't, I don't recover as fast, right? And he goes, the strange thing about that is it's forced me to work way more smart, because I have to be like more efficient and I have to think about kind of how can I get from A to B rather than just like, you know, like with you with the safe, like, you know, cutting the thing. You know, <laughs> like rather this. than just like muscling through, I have to like think how can I get to the end like as fast as possible because I can't afford to like do an all nighter. And so people from the outside, like he has his own uh, his own uh, law law office now and stuff like that. And he goes. People like they're like, wow, he's so wise. He's so like. So, and he goes, actually, it's just laziness. It's just because I basically I can't like just muscle through things in a in a kind of frenzy that I have to think 
you know, more, more intelligently. Right? You know what I mean? It's <laughs> well, like, I, I try to explain it like this. I'm not giving you this wisdom from a place of superiority. Mm-hmm. It's just, I did more dumb crap than you've ever done. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, so often that's, that's what it is, right? You learn. But the thing is, is I, I'm always, I'm always skeptical of like how useful it is to tell Somebody that because very often got to learn on your own people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, cause there are certain kind of building blocks of, of knowledge where if you don't have that experience, there's not any way to talk about it and to get to like a next, like for instance, in my, I teach this class called love and friendship. And if I, there's been some times this semester was not so much one, but there's been some times where we talk about, uh, romantic love really intensely in that particular version of that class. And so in, in those classes, I will ask on the first day of the class, I'll say, how many of you have been in love at least one time in your life? Right. And they put up their hands and I say, if you don't have your hand up, uh, you need to leave now and drop my <laughs> class. I'm serious. Yeah. I'm like drop my class. Like, cause we're going to talk about, uh, with the meaning of this experience and, and how to sort of how to navigate these things. And like, if you haven't had this experience, there's no way that we can, there's nothing I can possibly say or anybody else can say, or any book can tell you that's going to, it's, it's like my, my the example I always fall back on. And we were saying this in Elsa's the other day, but like if, if you were born blind and you've never seen anything blue, it's impossible for me to explain to you what blue is because explaining blue always makes reference to something that's blue. So it's like, <laughs> well, it's like, you know, the sky on a clear day. I've never seen the sky. I'm born blind. Yeah. So like, like, so like, like if, if you've, if you're born blind, it's, it, nobody can explain to you what blue is because you've never seen something. So likewise, if you've never experienced romantic love and you don't know how, crazy making it is oh like yeah, yeah well you know about it. i know you, you, know you find the, out a lot about yourself when you're, yeah, you're yeah, in love. yeah i mean I'm, I'm not gonna go there but you <laughs> no. know all about that yeah so like the, the the way the the intoxication and the kind of the it's it's uh, i mean like jonathan Haidt says in in the happiness hypothesis that when they when you look at a brain scan of somebody who's like madly love like at the beginning of a relationship when you're totally like crazy and you can't think about anything but the person and all that stuff the the brain scan of somebody who's in love is indistinguishable from the brain scan of somebody who's high on cocaine. <laughs> it's like like their brain looks exactly <laughs> the same, and so it's it's no surprise that uh, people in the same way that people who get um, you know addicted to something like cocaine get will like destroy their relationships with their family, their work, their the, everything right for this. Thing, right well people when they're you know the classic Romeo and Juliet right people who are very much in love will turn their back on their family turn their back on their religion turn their back on on everything even their own you know dignity sometimes right and just want to believe kind of the best about this person <laughs> it's wild but if you haven't had that ex- experience yeah, you, we can't, you have we, no idea you have no idea like right so I mean at this point in my life uh, the romantic love I think I'd be more under control yeah. At, the, at this point. Uh, but the love I have for, like, say, my children, I still know I would do anything. Like, if somebody came to hurt them or, or hurt their feelings. Like, my daughter has a boyfriend now. Oh, my God. Poor guy. And uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> poor him. She's going to eat him up and spit him out. Uh, yeah. She's a very strong woman. Yeah. Very intelligent, strong, powerful. 
Um, and all I'm thinking is, if you hurt my daughter, <laughs> I will hunt you down. Yeah, and I'll get in wherever <laughs> you're at. Like, Nothing <laughs> can stop me. Nothing. I want you to think about that. It'd be like that what, what's that with the Liam Neeson. Like, I have acquired a special skill set that can be used. <laughs> That's exactly what I say to them in, that, in, in his tone, actually. Yeah. I have a certain set of skills that makes me a very dangerous man. I will come for you. <laughs> this is your chance now to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the gym going, I'm going to be bigger. Yeah, I'm going to be bigger. <laughs> That's going to work, right? Like, well, I yeah, but I think the, the love that you have for your kids, I think it's a, I don't know, for me at least, it's a completely different kind of love than um, the it's, love it's that you, you have for somebody that you're in love with, like for your, your girlfriend or your wife or something like that. It's a different kind of uh, a love because the love you have for your kids is, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's it's almost it feels almost like self-love, like the way that you love. Because your, they're part of you. you yeah. The way you love like your legs or your arms. Like, I really like having, I would like to not have this, you know, well. like the, like the way you, it feels like almost um, uh, like the way you, you love yourself. Whereas I think love of like, Again, romantic comes back, love comes back to bear when, how I want to show off. Those are my kids. Yeah. yeah. It just happened. You all saw it. I had nothing really to do with it. I yeah. don't know. No, well, I didn't understand, and I think I was pretty contemptuous, probably, <laughs> of the way in which, like, people would live through their kids' successes, and they would be, like, really kind of, like, bright. I I didn't get it until I actually had kids, and then I was like, no, <laughs> oh. I totally, totally get it. Yeah. I totally get it. Like, I, it's, uh, it is, there's something very, but... But romantic love, I would say, is very different because romantic love, at least as I understand it, and I experience it, is is very much like love of of something, somebody that is like radically other. Yeah, like they're not you, not part of you. They're no, they're, they're like a completely different. They're like a completely different um, person, and they've got their own stuff going on, and it's like trying to understand what's going on with them, and it's uh, they're not like. Yeah, I know, like, the, you know, the Bible says, and the two shall become one flesh, but that, that was not my experience. The two are very much no. two fleshes. And, <laughs> and you have that, like, I'm not a jealous person, but, <laughs> like, I remember being in love and, like, getting a little, like, what is this feeling? Why do I feel like that? It, it's like, and it, it takes you over. It's it's not something, it's like a creature inside of you clawing out. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's like, this is not normal. I, I don't know how to handle this. I, I got to leave. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing, you know, I'm not going to get in any details. I don't want to get you, once again, I don't want to get you in trouble. But like, I, one thing that is always, a question I've always had about like, you know, with your, your situation is if you've been, uh, if you've been really burned in that particular arena, right? If you've been really burned in love, which I have never, uh, I mean, I've, I've had like bad breakups. I've had bad situations sure but i've never been uh i've never been like really really burned you know like the way you know the, the way you were right like <laughs> well, things back. happen yeah well like i've never been burned like that where somebody that i let in that close just like <laughs> like just like stomped <laughs> on my heart and fucking like you know like i've never had that and but it always it always occurs to me when i because i've known people i mean you and a number of other people like who have had that experience. And I just wonder, how do you ever, how do you ever like trust anybody again <laughs> after that? Do you just like say, you know what? 
I've got a lot of other stuff going on in my life. I've got a great career. I've got great kids. I've got great friends. I've got a lot of other things going on. This one piece, the the romance kind of like, you know, relationship piece that, you know, whatever, I'm done with that. Like, what do you, what, is it possible to actually like bounce back from that? Or is that basically, boom, I'm, I'm, I'm done, right? Oh, if we're going to be totally truthful, which I guess it's, it's the point, right? Yeah. Um, for a long time, I focused on everything else besides any romantic involvement. Yeah, which um, is fine. I mean, like, wait, wait, yeah. Which, like, my, my kids took up a lot of my focus. My work took up my focus and everything. And you, you convince yourself that you're fine, but you're not. You know, you're, you're always going to miss that romantic uh, feeling, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, what I find is, like, you can trust again, but the thing is it takes a lot longer. Okay. Like you let people in slowly and like you analyze everything they've done and why did they do that? Okay. Red flag. Oh my God, I'm out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> abort. Abort mission. Yeah. You know? And it's it's fast now. Like uh, before you'd give them a lot of time like, oh, maybe they didn't mean that and you give them a lot of chances. Now you don't give them chances. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a very loving person. Very yeah. Very sociable. And, uh, uh, all your friends would say that for sure. Yeah. And um I try to let people in. It's, uh, but the thing is, it takes a lot of courage, and I don't always have a lot of courage. Yeah. <laughs> and it, sure, you get hurt every once in a while, but the thing is, it's definitely worth it, right? Yeah. Well, it's like uh, Louis C.K. before he got like Me Too and stuff like that. <laughs> he had his last, his last major show. I, I can't remember what the name was. But he has this thing where he talks about like falling in love and, you know, after he's divorced and he's had all that stuff. And he said, you know, I don't think I can ever like, fall in love again because I just know too much. <laughs> it's like, you know, to Man. fall in love, you have to be basically, you have to be kind of young and kind of naive. He goes, I know exactly how everything's going to go wrong. I know, like, I can see, like, so... I'm Ignorance like of, is bliss. Yeah, he's like, I'm one of those jaded, you know, vets that shakes, you know, with PTSD or something. Like, I, I know how this is going to go down. I can't kind of jump in. Yeah, like completely, and I, I, I think mm. that's, I think that's sad. I mean, like it, it is. I mean, I love the way women are. Everything about them, not just the way they look, the way they smell, the way their minds work, the the way they are. Absolutely, I have such love for women, and uh, <laughs> it's like, it. But the thing is, it, 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 it's, it's weird, right? Because you want to have a romantic involvement, but uh, you're so hesitant. You're like, oh, oh no, that can go horribly wrong. It's like, but now that my kids are older, it's like I'm open up again. You know, it's like now they can't hurt my kids at all. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. how, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah. So that's like that was a lot. Is the kid thing is yeah. You, to you, like you got to be very careful who you bring around your kids. Yeah. And Have I, you watched any of this like new Netflix show, Dirty John? Uh, actually, I, I've seen the advertisement for it. You've seen the advertisement? Okay. I'm hesitant to watch it because it might hit too close to home. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I, I'm about, I'm a couple episodes into it, but it's based, it's completely based on a real story. And I listened to the, the podcast uh, version of it. Annalise and I listened to like all of the podcasts when it came out, which was like a few years ago. It's all based on a completely real thing that happened, right? And so this woman who's a very, very successful entrepreneur, she's very, very wealthy in California, and she's like about 
like I think she's like fifty nine, sixty. But she's one of these like California. They're like half cyborgs, and she looks like amazing. But she's sixty. She had like probably I imagine a lot of plastic surgery. But but anyway, she and she meets this guy on like one of those like dating apps or something like that. Oh, those are crazy. And he is supposedly like a doctor and all this stuff. And anyway, she gets into this relationship with him. They fall very much in love. They get married, and she eventually finds out that this guy is a total con artist, is uh, like a sociopath, and uh, it becomes, I'm not going to tell you what, but it gets really, really, really crazy. And it's all a totally true story. But one of the things, uh, and the podcast was wildly successful, and so I guess they they got a contract to make a Netflix uh, special out of it, and now there's a Netflix, like, which is all based on it, right? But it's... um, and so far from what we've seen in the Netflix show, it's almost word for word from the actual transcripts of what happened. Hmm. Like they, they're not, this story is so insane. You don't need to like make you're not, anything you're not up. Che- yeah. You're yeah. not checking to see if it's true. You don't it, have it's to too like, crazy. it's too crazy. <laughs> right. But one thing that comes through to me watching the, the Netflix thing so far is that this woman, she's on like her sixth marriage. Right. And she's had like all sorts of really bad, bad experiences with men. And it's just kind of amazing because she's this woman who like, you know, professionally and in in her business, she's been incredibly successful. She's been really successful in terms of like her friends. She has a lot of like really good friendships. She's a really great mother. She's good like with the family piece, the friend piece, with the like money and professional piece. She's good on so many different scores but when it comes to romance, she has horrible, horrible taste in men. Like <laughs> a lot of women are like that. She just really. Oh yeah, yeah. I have a lot of friends that uh, they and they're fantastic. Like uh, I know this girl. I'm not going to say her name. Works out all the time. Has three kids of her own. She deserves. She it. live in Point Claire by any chance? Yes, she does. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I know exactly who you're talking about. Okay. And she, she's like a superhero. <laughs> yeah, she is. She's she's, she's got amazing. everything. A beautiful person, beautiful Very, personality. Yep. She could do anything and, and yeah. active. And she ends up with these guys, <laughs> and like you could see right away. Oh my god! Not only is that's he not going to work. Is, <laughs> like he's a he's a moron and he's controlling and yeah. like it's just so bad. Like how can you get to this age and want to control someone else? It yeah. makes no sense, you know, and uh, it, it makes me sad. Yeah. Like, it's like. What, what do you think is going on with that? Do you think it's that they're basically, they're, you know, they, I mean, there's that guy, um, the the love guy. I gave you this book, Essays in Love. Alain de Botton. Alain de Botton, he says that um, if you, when you're a little kid, if you have like, like a, a mom who's like a drunk or who's depressed or who's like, you know, whatever, that, and, and you, so you associate your love and that kind of powerful, powerful like emotion, you associate that with being with somebody who's basically unpredictable, unreliable, um, all over the place that you basically, you look for somebody that makes you feel that familiar way. Abs- right? Absolutely. Do you think it's That's like exactly a kid what thing? It, yes. Uh, um, from knowing these people, they, they've told me like stories about their lives and I see how they, correspond with what exactly what you're saying it's like uh they didn't get any reassurance from their parents they didn't really matter to their parents so they feel like they're unworthy yeah and it's it's insane 
Yeah. It's insane how they view themselves. Yeah. You know, they, well, they, no, I, I had, I had like a massive crush on this friend of mine when I was a, in my teen years and like, she was in a relationship, I was in a relationship and, um, but I like, so anyway, we both ended up like getting out of the relationships we were in, we were single and so I was like, I'm going to make my move. And so I like, maybe, move. and we ended up getting together and it would just like fizzled, like just didn't go anywhere. Right. And about, so about like, I don't know, like a month in, we were both like, let's just go back to being friends and forget <laughs> about this. And so we went back to being friends and that was the end of it. And you know, we're friends to this day. Well, you were too nice a guy. Yeah. And basically like, I realized like all of her guys that she was with were either like really controlling and crazy or they were a lot of them were very distant they like kind of would go off for like four or five days and not even like tell her they they were weird and i knew like her dad her dad was like an incredibly sketchy person he was actually when i delivered montreal gazettes in Verdun, he was my like my district manager that would like bring the papers in the morning and and he was a sketchy guy like he would steal from like teenage <laughs> like paper people he was had like a coke habit and he would just like take off for like five six days at a time without telling his like family where he was and so she, surprise surprise she always falls in love with guys who are unattainable unreliable um kind of like hot and cold like they're like really really affectionate and really nice to you for like a few days and then they're just like absent and gone right <laughs> yeah that's and so i was basically just too kind of present and, and boring and, and into her <laughs> i was like i should have like you know like, like, like yeah you yeah, can show up sometime i, I should have like just been like mean to her like you know, I was like, you know she's like yeah I she's all over me i don't know what to do now yeah like, yeah you probably should have like hit me or something <laughs> i was like that is so messed up because i know i know I and mean, she eventually realized this like in her 30s and she she switched her her patterns and she kind of um settled down with like a, a more kind of like a, a stable guy who was, you know, not playing games all the time, not emotionally unavailable. But then, you know, these things are so hardwired that even with that guy, she, she told me, you know, I, I wrestle with the fact that he's an amazing father. He's a great husband. He's a great provider. He, I, I met the guy. He's like, just like a really, really awesome guy. He's funny He's smart. He's like, he's nice. He's cool. But she goes, I, I wrestle with the fact that I'm totally unattracted to him. <laughs> that's insane. So insane. Yeah. She's like, uh, I, I, I'm, that's how hardwired this yeah. crap is. You know, like if, if that's what you have learned on some level, what you're attracted to is somebody who's terrible. Well, like that's just so messed up. I mean, like what a responsibility for new parents. It's like you're forming, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, the way you are with this person, you're forming, you know, if they have a good example of that, like I, you know, I, I teach at, at John Abbott, right? And like most of the students that I have, when I ask a class, how many of you are your parents still together out at John Abbott, you know, it's kind of more of a wealthy suburb, suburban area, 80, 90% of my students uh, their parents are still together. No way. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's insane. It's, they're like I'm they, so they come from the like time. intact families where they've gotten a lot of love and they've gotten a lot of you know support from both parents and a wide kind of circle network of friends and, and family and stuff like that. So those people, right? If you know those, like for instance, those my 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 female students, right? 
they get into a relationship with a guy who starts mistreating them, they're like, fuck that. Like, they're out. <laughs> you know, they're like, That's what I want to see. Because they've been treated yeah. well, and so they, they have an expectation that, well, you're going to treat me well. I mean, they're not, I, I'm not saying they're spoiled, but they have an expectation. They might be entitled. We don't want to say they, I don't think they are. They just have a, a, an expectation of what uh, love feels like somebody who's got my back and who's there for me and who's, who's good to me, right? Whereas uh, these people like we grew up in Verdun and the Point and stuff like that it, with these like fucked up family situations, <laughs> love for them feels like something really messed up. Put the knife down is all I'm saying. <laughs> you know, it's like if you don't try to stab me once, you don't like me at all. <laughs> yeah, it's. I I wonder if, I mean, I guess I've definitely seen people who get over that. I just I don't know. It must be well rough. I mean, we I I think we gain wisdom as we go. It's like us men. When we're young, you look at the hottest girl. You're like, oh, look at that girl. She's so hot. And like nowadays, I'm at the gym and I see the girl in the spandex that came with makeup and done her hair to go to the gym, and I'm thinking, oh no, I'm not going to go near <laughs> that girl. Ever. I'm going to go to the girl walk, working out that she looks like she's there to work out. Because she's a predator. <laughs> and we know it. <laughs> she's there to she, meet a new boyfriend, is all I'm there, saying. Like, what, what that's, I mean, a predator? Mm-hmm. You... <laughs> I might have taken it farther than <laughs> I wanted to. But predator is the proper word, I think. Yeah, yeah well, mm. I guess you have to, like, you have to think about what kind of, what kind of, like, <laughs> virtues that person signal well, especially when, right? when, they're, when they're doing like a little walk too in, involved and it's like i'm thinking i better check to see if she's wearing high heel shoes no no we're good we're good but yeah the see-through spandex yeah i'm, I'm thinking she's a type <laughs> i mean i don't want to be judgy but i'm gonna be judgy <laughs> well this is this is the thing i there's a that randall monroe he has the the just the the comics, the online comic XKCD. I don't know if you heard of. Him. He's like a he does a lot of techie stuff, but he's just all around like hilarious. But he has this one uh, comic. You can like Google it later on. You'll find it, and it's uh, it, it, the guy says like I had a dream last night. It was the most beautiful dream. It was like all the guys who've read the game, you know, like the game, oh, like, yes, the yes. pickup artist like book. Right? He's like I had this beautiful dream last night that all the guys who've read the game. And all the women who've read the rules, right? Which is the kind of which is like this book about how to land a man and like how to like and all this stuff. He said, "I had this beautiful dream that all the people who've read the game and all the women who've you know run, they meet each other and go off and leave all the rest of us alone." <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we know which ones are which, right? They, yeah. Well, it's it's I I've I've been noting this for a while, and at first time I just thought it was like a weird tragic accident but i've seen it so many times now that i don't think it's an accident anymore i don't think it's coincidence there's a certain type of guy who is um basically like actually a misogynist like they really don't like women hypothetically they, can we name him paul uh, hypothetically <laughs> uh we could okay. um you know just for not because we know anybody not by we, that we, name none who's like this at all we're just hypothetically paul right? <laughs> uh the but there's a certain kind of guy that they basically don't like women, yeah. but they're straight, right? They're heterosexual, so they're attracted to women. And so they, like, they kind of, like, look at them as this foreign species, and it's like, well, how do I attract the deer so I can uh, shoot them? Absolutely. Like, how do I, like, what, what bait what do I put down? What scent do I yeah. put down? And then what's crazy is that those guys, so often, they end up with a certain kind of woman 
who basically hates men and said, men are pigs, men are scum, men only want one thing. And it's funny, and but so it's the man they, she's with. <laughs> and, and they basically, they have a contemptuous attitude towards, uh, towards, towards men, right? And so they think also, how do I like trick men into like getting... Getting and what so, I want. And so basically what's, what's so messed up is the two of them, they end up, they find each other, they make each other miserable... And then the fact that they make each other miserable just reinforces their beliefs about men and women, right? It's very so symbiotic. I, yeah. It's very symbiotic. Like yeah, yeah, one you're guy, it. which is not the guy you just have, another guy, but this one guy <laughs> that I know who he just recently, and this has happened like, like three times in the last 10 years, where he's met somebody, fallen madly in love with, uh, with her, and been just obsessed with her, and he like bought her like this huge like engagement ring, and was all kind of like, crazy about her and then kind of at the last like something goes wrong like at the last minute like before the the most recent one was just before it was like a few months before this big wedding that was planned and stuff like that he's a big software uh, guy in montreal he's got a lot of money and everything just before they were supposed to get married she went back home for some family function like in russia she met some i don't know like the son of an oligarch or something like she met like somebody with more money than him and more status than him at like a like a wedding or some family function and just like said i found somebody better and like broke it off <laughs> well uh, uh huh? and, and you hear this and you're like oh my god ew like that's so so gross but the thing is is like if you if you think Women are all status obsessed mm -hmm. and all they want is like, if you have this like idea about women and, and right. And she has an idea about what men are like. And then the two of you find each other. Surprise, surprise. You're both assholes. Like, like, like that's who you were, like, that's who you were hunting for. Actually, I, I found you're exactly right. That's exactly what I've d discovered is that people are like that. Like m myself, I, I like hanging out with all different types. Like, uh, it, it, sometimes it feels like an experiment sometimes, right? I just want to see what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my God, everybody's so different. It doesn't like matter a reality how much, show. Yeah, <laughs> right. It, it doesn't matter how much money they have. It doesn't matter how much they work out, what their weight is, what they look like, you know, like uh, what, what nationality they are. It doesn't matter. Like they're all so different and it's fun finding out what those differences are. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, and, uh, and even, even the cultures that, that are so different, it's, it's exciting. But the, these guys that are looking for the specific type of woman like well she's got to be like this and she's got to be good with kids and she's got to she's got to be independent and she's got to be a uh, university degree and it's like oh my god don't check that list buddy you're never yeah. going to find what you want because that's not what you want <laughs> well i mean often we don't know what exactly want, right but but definitely if you go for the kind of spray tan dive blonde like the person in the gym <laughs> you're talking if you go if you go for that person not definitely but chances are that person's going to have a certain set of values and, and virtues, which maybe are not perfectly aligned with like making a family. <laughs> I mean, like, well, my yeah, thoughts are if I ever met Lara Croft, you know, the, the Tomb Raider. Sure, 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 sure. And, uh, you know, I'm in the jungle with her and she's protecting me and can kick butt more than I can. I'm in love. <laughs> You're in love. I'm, I'm like proposing right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know that, right. There's been like, for instance, when I, when I met, when I met Annalisa, like, Actually, the the day after we met, um, she told me like you know in, in the wee hours of the morning, she said uh, she said to me she's like oh my god I've got to like 
drive from Baltimore to New Jersey because it's my little brother's birthday party today. And I was like, at first I thought, okay, is she just like blowing me off? <laughs> is, she, is she like, is this like her excuse? Like, uh, yes, I have a dental dentist appointment. Like, but then when I, she actually, it was real. And she got in her car and drove from Baltimore all the way to New Jersey, like in to go to her little brother's birthday party. Like, and that actually signaled something very interesting to me. I was like, wow, this person takes family very, very seriously. Which was a total turn on for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought like, well, that's, well, that's clearly, you know, it's, it's like, it's signaling a certain kind of virtue that that might be a very good person to partner with. <laughs> you know, like that's. Uh, because you're just seeing evidence of of even somebody that's been up all night, you know, with somebody just hooked up. <laughs> we literally hooked up in a bar and came all and like in the middle of the night. She's like, "Oh my god, I've got to like go and and she drove." When, when you're telling that story at a 50 year anniversary, you want you want you want to change it a little. But anybody who tells you sleazy hookups cannot lead to long term <laughs> relationships, total lie. Well, like, <laughs> so, oh, oh. <laughs> I admit to nothing. You admit to nothing. <laughs> um, Seeing from the outside, you and your wife, I can tell you what you like. Oh, really? Yes. You are attracted to intelligence. Yeah, well, and also kind of disagreeableness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that comes with it, right? Like, uh, but, yeah. uh, because she's so intelligent, it's a little uh, intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> and like, so I'm like, wow, uh, I don't know what to say now. And that's not really my problem. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, well it's, a, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of different things. But definitely, I... I always... Um, also, she's very loving. Yeah. Like, uh, she excretes that. Like, uh, just, like, loves everybody. Yeah. Well, it's... it's. I think a lot of it is also that... Uh, because, if you know, we talk about, like, our, you know, our issues from when we're kids and stuff. Like, one of my, I guess, daddy issues, you know, for the most obvious reasons, is that I... Um, because of the way he was and stuff like that and the way he was in, in the world, is I was very, very... Um, preoccupied it's almost like a star wars thing i was like i did not want to become darth vader like do not luke, luke do not yeah, yeah exactly yeah. i did not want to like and so i was very much afraid of like ever being in a relationship with somebody who wouldn't push back and who would not okay. kind of because i didn't want to like become and i thought if i'm with somebody that is very submissive and like lets me like sort of just walk all over them and lets me like get my way all the time that if, if I'm with somebody like that, I'm going to become like my father. And so I was like, the best way to prevent myself from becoming like that is to just only ever be like with somebody who, you know, will like basically call me on bullshit sure. and be like, nah, and like, will actually push back and have a lot of spirit and stuff like that. And I, it's, yeah, it's a weird, but I can see like throughout. <laughs> and it means that I've, I've, you know, throughout my life tended to be, uh, in relationships with people that were quite disagreeable and contentious, and there, you know, there's like, there's uh, like some friction in there, but but I I do not I would not want to be with somebody who just like oh that you would know be horrible smiles and nods. <laughs> like, oh, you're so great. Let's just do whatever you want. Like, Even in my personal friendships, I, I like people that'll tell me when I'm being a dumbass because yeah. well, I'm being a dumbass a lot. But um, I want people to argue with me. That tells you a lot about who you are too. Yeah, you don't want people just blowing smoke up your ass going, yeah. you know, like, you were great. I'm like, well, thanks for telling me that. That's I, I don't want to hear that. I want to say, <laughs> you know, you could have did this better. I'm like, yeah. oh, that's constructive. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can see where you're right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's that seems to me is like 
like a basic corrupting force. Yeah. Right. Whenever you have people that have like a lot of fame or a lot of money or a lot of power in, in whatever way, it seems like the basic, and this is like the whole, uh, the, the fable of the, the emperor's new clothes, right? Like, like when you have like a lot of power so that everybody you deal with either wants something from you or they're afraid of you. Right. So they want a job from you or they want money for you. They want something. So basically everybody around you, either because of fear or desire, which, you know, as the, as Buddha said a long time ago, are like the worst motivators, right? Like fear and desire make people lie, right? You ask a little kid, did you steal that cookie? And you're being all terrifying. No, no, no. no. <laughs> like, you know, the, the more like, uh, the more somebody is afraid of you or they want something from you, the more inclined they are to like tell you what they think you want to hear, right? Yeah. So if you surround yourself by people like that, right? It can just really corrupt, corrupt you, right? And like, I, th- I think that's why when you meet like really rich people or celebrities in real life, very often they're just like total assholes, yeah. right? <laughs> and you think like, were you always like this? I don't think so. I think like you get corrupted, right? If you're always around people that... Well, that, if everybody treats you like you're gold. Yeah. Right? And if nobody says like, you know, you're being really annoying, like you're being really rude, like... Don't talk to me like that. Didn't like, uh, Albert have some theories on that? Like, uh, because you're you're an actor, you're getting treated like this all the time, that you start to believe it. Yeah. You start to believe that, like you're some hero or, or god. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is hard, right? Because, like, the parts, the parts of our brain that are devoted to self-consciousness are, in, in terms of the structure of the brain, they're very recent additions to the prefrontal cortex. They're very recent. Whereas the parts of our brain that are devoted to like evaluating other people's behavior, those are like ancient. Those are like really, really, really old. So we're extremely good at evaluating other people's behavior and kind of keeping score of how good or bad somebody is and what they, if they're, we're very good at evaluating other people's behavior. We're really not that good at evaluating our own behavior. That's totally believable. Like, <laughs> and so, this is why, like, like Jonathan Haidt in the, in his book, the the Righteous Mind, right? Why good people are divided by politics and religion. He says that uh, the reason why people get into such crazy like fights about politics and religion and all this stuff is because, like, our you know the righteous mind, we have a natural tendency towards self righteousness. All of us, right? And so he he says, and he says this as an atheist, right? I mean, he's a Jewish atheist, but. He says that religion, at its best, is a kind of technology which ty- which tries to correct for our natural tendency towards self righteousness. So, in the same way that, like, uh, if you can't see very well, right, you get like glasses to help you like see clearly. Uh, he says religion basically tries to fix your natural tendency towards self righteousness. So, it, and he gives like all these examples, but like in the Christian context, like. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, right? And and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who uh, trespass against. It's trying to get you to be much easier on other people and to be much harder on yourself, right? And so now you get like the modern world where you have all these like like Dr. Phil and all these like shrinks who say like, <laughs> and people are so oh, confrontational. you know, Catholicism is so bad because it gives you Catholic guilt. Actually, <laughs> Catholicism makes you see yourself for the shit that you actually are most of the time, right? So like, his Hyde's point is like what we call Catholic guilt or or you know Muslim guilt or is basically just knocking you down a couple pegs so that you're as 
uh, you're as hard on yourself as you are on other people, hmm. right? Because if you just go with the default, the default is that you will tend to be incredibly forgiving of yourself and really harsh on other people, right? And so they, they basically, he goes through all these like, like uh, Islamic prayers, like, which basically all amount to remembering all the shitty things that you've done <laughs> in a day and all the ways in which you suck. And like the, the Buddhists do that, remembering all the ways in which you suck and then meditating on that as a way of like um, realizing you're not, you're not as hot shit as you think. You're not as nice as you think you are. Like, you know? I never thought I was nice. I mean, come on. I have such a hard time with turn the other cheek. <laughs> the, like, yeah, but it's, it's, it's an interesting idea in terms of it, – it definitely – one of the things I've noticed whenever I've, I've spent a lot of time around like very, very religious people. And I don't mean people that are like dogmatic or fundamentalist or like weird like that. I'm talking like actually people who have like a spirituality that's like deep and they live it. One of the things, common thread through all those people, very humble. Very, yeah. very humble and very forgiving and very like they don't hold grudges. They don't, uh, they're like just, you know, they just seem to have like a, they're not where they don't have that kind of that you find in people like, like, you know, whether it be like evangelical Christians or super fundamentalist or social justice warriors, where there's just this intense self-righteousness behind everything. Like I'm so amazing and, and you suck, right? Like it's completely the opposite, <laughs> right? They have like the, the really religious people. They seem to have this attitude of, of, uh, kind of moral humility, Right, like for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, like for all, every, yeah, everybody kind of sucks, and I do too. And I, they're just more kind of forgiving and and compassionate towards uh, towards other people, which I, I think is, I mean, it's one of Jonathan Haidt's amazing in many ways. But like he he's been on the podcast and we we actually talked about this. But like it's it's one of those things where it's like a secular guy giving a really amazing argument for why religion is not all bad right (laughs) which is a an odd thing but um you're making me realize that maybe i think too highly of myself and i should (laughs) start a church of rod or something right but i i I actually know somebody who's humble like that i totally joined that (laughs) you'd be high priest (laughs) (laughs) just imagine the parties oh the parties would be amazing more like a cult of aphrodite you know kind of feel we'd get like dancers you know i i have a friend um let's call her kelly okay (laughs) and she she is super humble so forgiving and things don't seem to bother her like she's so forgiving of people who trespass against her does she smoke weed all the time? No, okay. <laughs> uh, not a once that I'm aware of, and she could hardly drink anymore. So, like, she is a beautiful person, like a like beautiful soul. And sometimes I think, man, I should be more like that because I'm fiery. You say something to me, I'm coming after you, <laughs> and maybe just verbally. Mm-hmm. I'm not coming after you to karate chop you, but I'm like rah, rah, like a little puppy, right? Yeah. And maybe that's the defic- deficiencies in me. That you're making me realize, you know, because Kelly, I don't, would... I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's like that. I think it's, uh, it's, it's healthy within reason. It's healthy to just let people know I'm not going to be, you know, trampled on. <laughs> like, you don't have to be this like, this is my boundary. And yeah. Let's just that. like saying, saying very clearly. I mean, I, I remember there's this guy on, on Oprah this years ago and her show was still on and he had, he was 
like had gone to jail for a long time for like beating up his wife and like really beating her horribly and and all this stuff and he ended up going to jail and for assault and all the aggravated assault and he was talking about how he had been abusive in like all of his relationships and um and so somebody i think it was oprah or somebody on the panel i can't remember asked him like did did sort of you just did you attract women who were looking for kind of abusive people like you know subconsciously or did you like always end up with these people that would put up with that kind of stuff and he said oh no <laughs> he said no 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 i i had plenty of like short term relationships where i would meet somebody and you know things would be going great and then i would like you know we would get into our first really bad fight and I would like get up in their face and like or push them or grab them or, or be really kind of like scary and aggressive. And they would just be like, I'm out. <laughs> and just be like, boom. Yeah. Right. And so, and they would just like leave immediately because that was like a barrier where they were like, nah, I'm not cool with that. Right. And so he said, the people I ended up like long term with, it was people that would put up with it. Right. Huh. Which is so I think a certain amount of like just don't tread on me. Right, like the you know American early slogan, like just letting people know, like no, that's that's not okay. <laughs> I I'm a have a heavy abort um, <laughs> cord right now. You know, abort, abort. Yeah, yeah. And I I was dating this girl, and uh, one of the biggest things I noticed uh, of abuse is when they try to keep you away from your personal friends. Oh yeah, this is a big thing, and uh, you, you only become self aware of it after it's happened. Yeah. And so nowadays, if I'm dating a girl and she's jealous that I'm going to go over to a friend's house or something and, like, they put up a real fight, I'm not going to be with that girl. That's, yeah. that's not happening. I, I can accept jealousy because I have a little bit of jealousy myself. Like, I, I understand that. Like, yeah. it, it's natural. But don't tell me who I can be around yeah. ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's – I mean, that's a – that's a not just a relationship thing. That goes for totalitarian states. That goes for cults. That goes for, you know, all a common thread in in basically abusive, bad situations is they try and isolate you. Yeah, isolating cult leaders, cult leaders, they try and like isolate you from your family and friends. They don't want you to have contact or, you know, the most extreme case would be like North Korea, where they spend a huge amount of money like around the borders, jamming the like radio waves and stuff like that, because they don't want people in, in North Korea to sort of see TV or hear to know radio. To know, and yeah, it all comes down to the same thing. It's like whether it's an abusive boyfriend or an abusive dictator is or a cult leader is that they don't want you to have access to perspective, right? They don't want you to be able to talk to somebody else who could give them perspective on their, on their relationship, on their state, on their... And so they, they try and like create like a bubble where you don't, uh, you never leave it, right? Because <laughs> right? if you left it, you might, uh, they might be able to, like, see, right, this, things could be better. Yeah, right? that's a, exactly right. So now I, I can see that clearly now when that starts to happen, and I'm out fast. <laughs> yeah, like, so you, no, gone. <laughs> you don't get into that. that no, thing no, no. If they're like, yeah, let's go out with your friends. If she wants to come along, too. I have no problem with that. That's cool. Yeah. That, that would be enjoyable, because I don't mind... The sharing of people and uh, my time, and I, I love that. Yeah. But if she's like, yeah, I never want to go out with your friends. 
I'm like, okay, yeah, well, uh, it was nice knowing you, and uh, goodbye. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a video that went viral a few years ago. I'll try and find it. I'll send it to you. But it was um, it was all about kind of emotional abuse in relationships, right? Which I, I was a little skeptical about the, the notion, but you watch this video, and by the end, you're like, whoa, I've totally seen that happening. But it shows a, a, a couple where it's like a straight couple, man and woman, and like, they're really amazing when they're together, but whenever she wants to like go out with like her sister or with her friends or when she's even like going to work, uh, he gets really angry and he like texts her constantly, like and calls her constantly with like stupid questions that are like not important. Like we'll call like like twenty, thirty times all the time. so that it's it makes it impossible for her to like actually have a conversation. So super with, manipulative. Yeah, and, and basically and if and if she doesn't answer freaks out and starts leaving like really really like inflammatory like what are you doing that you can't answer the phone right now and like <laughs> like freaking are you ignoring out. me and like and then when she gets back getting into a huge screaming fight till like like three or four in the morning when he gets home and it's basically trying to wear you down to the point where you never want to like go out without them because they're just gonna make your life so miserable and it's to isolate right and to, you, you become super submissive yeah yeah, yeah, that won't happen to me again. I promise that. <laughs> yeah, well, you you had that. You had that crazy, crazy experience. The world will burn first. Yeah. I, <laughs> sorry. Beep. Yeah. Anyway, well, I guess we'll we'll close up. We'll close up there. Is there any final words you'd like to? Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This I, I'm is, uh, honored amazing. to be here, buddy. Honored. The, to be here. Uh, I mean, I, I I got a safe cracker and Doctor Phil. This is like amazing. <laughs> <laughs> totally didn't. Uh, uh, I can like, give you some kid advice. The uh, <laughs> are you ready for this? <laughs> What is the kid advice? If you're sure what you're doing is right, you're absolutely wrong. Because <laughs> you don't know how they're going to turn out until the end. But it's the people that are so sure of themselves. They're the ones that do things the wrongest. All on right, that well, on that, on that wonderful <laughs> note. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming to the podcast. And you'll have to do this again sometime. All right. Anytime, Take John. care. Bye. Thanks, buddy. Okay.